Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. All right, let's get into it for today. <laughs> Goodness, I feel like we're just like kind of like super worn out. So it's hard to like get like super pumped up or excited or annoyed for any part of this episode we're doing. Do we have emotions? Yes. What are they? Bland. <laughs> uh, bland or dead inside, either one. Those are usually, it's usually my net zero, my state of equilibrium if you will yeah oh goodness that's okay we're here we're doing this um the subject is good so it's a good one so we also have we'll still enjoy ourselves we always do so need to kind of dive in some more yeah that's all yeah so let's do that (laughs) we don't have any corrections (laughs) corner this week nope so we can move right into today's episode religious art ta-da so I mean we've we've touched on like different types of media um different mediums throughout our podcast so like we've talked about uh LDS movies we've talked about some music I think um and we've definitely talked about books um but yeah so we haven't like really covered the whole scope of religious art which is kind of silly because religious art in general is like a huge I don't even know what to call it. It's just so expansive. It's it's a lot. Yeah. So we are attempting to rectify that today. Yeah. Granted, there there, there really is a lot. There are centuries for, um, of types of religious art. There, I mean, we've got tons of different religions in the world. Um, religious art that is impacted by the era that it is from, as well as like the location and everything. So there's so much variety that there's literally no way for us to cover everything today. Um, I mean, someone could and might actually have an entire podcast about the basics of religious art because there really is just so much of it. Um, mainly what I know is from my humanities classes in college, which is actually a lot of fun. It was definitely my favorite class. Um, and they definitely talked about like early Christian religious art and everything like with the fish for Jesus kind of thing. Yeah, it's overall, I think a very super interesting and very fascinating realm to explore um but today we're just kind of discussing the tip of the iceberg to get started today we kind of want to dive in regarding like where religious art began which is also like super difficult because you have to like think about the term of religious art religion has it cover it covers a lot of overview because it includes cults it includes churches it includes cultures and everything so to like put a sticker on everything is like very hard to do because a lot could be framed as religious art that we wouldn't today really consider as religious art if that's easy to explain but it's just because it really can cover so much and especially like when it comes to religious art though it's interesting because that's the purpose of it was really to try and teach people lessons. And this was for cultures where there was writing and where there wasn't writing, mainly because not everyone had a common language with which to read or write. Um, so we've got mosaics, we've got stained glass, we've got all types of religious art and different art forms um, that's been utilized to mark holy spaces, as well as to like remind people of what they were learning at the time. Even like a few lines 
um, could really highlight what was necessary for the people to know. So be reminded of like what religious or supernatural beings were watching out for them um, or scripture related lessons for them, that kind of thing. Um, and like you can, and if you have any idea about that religion, then you can usually tell where you can usually tell that the location is religious space. Like um, I know there's been a lot of reference for like pyramids and stuff that has to do with the type of religion. And even today, church buildings in general, you can tell what they are due to the type of construction that is always given to them, whether it's, you know, Notre Dame or it's an LDS church building or especially one of our temples. I know that was like a little side tangent, but I just really find it fascinating and very compelling. Yeah, so we just, we can't really pinpoint from our basic knowledge of exactly where um, religious art began, but Tracy has some really great information to share with us. Yeah, so there's a fantastic TED-Ed lesson available online. It's titled A Brief History of Religion and Art by Jeremiah Dickey. In it, he shares that fine art was how people experienced an aesthetic aspect of their religion. For a time, art was the main way for people to feel the reality of divinity in their lives. Additionally, he shared that there are three specific phases of artwork that most religious groups go through throughout art history, and they are aniconism, iconography, and anthropomorphism. So we're going to give you a little art history lesson by explaining what these different movements and phases are. Aniconism is the practice of or belief in the avoiding or shunning of images of divine beings, prophets, or other respected religious figures, or in different manifestations, any human beings or living creatures. The term aniconic may be used to describe the absence of graphic representations in a particular belief system, regardless of whether an injunction against them exists. Basically, this means that in the early phases of art history, specifically religious art history, artists avoid graphic depictions of deity to avoid idolatry or to ensure that there's a distinct difference between divinity and humanity. So in this TED-Ed lesson, Dickey said, quote, for example, where depictions of Allah or the prophet Muhammad is prohibited, an abstract celebration of the divine can still be found in arabesque patterns of Islamic textile design, or the masterful flourishes of brushwork in Arabic calligraphy where the words of the prophet assume a dual role as both literature and visual art. Likewise, in early artwork of Christianity and in Buddhism, the divine presence of the Christ and the Buddha do not appear in human form but are represented by symbols. In each case, iconographic reference is employed as a form of reference, end quote. So like you had mentioned just a couple seconds ago, the fish was used to symbolize Jesus. That's like a very simple way to like wrap up an iconism. Nice. Solid. Okay, so moving into iconography, according to Dickey, he said, quote, iconography is the branch of art history which studies the identification, description, and the interpretation of the content of images, the subjects depicted, the particular compositions and details used to do so, and other elements that are distinct from artistic style. 
A secondary meaning is the production of religious images called icons. In the Byzantine and Orthodox Christian tradition, that is covered at icon. In art history, an iconography may also mean a particular depiction of a subject in terms of the content of the image, such as the number of figures used, their placement, and gestures, end quote. So essentially, this is where we start seeing religious symbols being created and repeated in artwork. So one example would be like a lamb representing Jesus Christ or a dove representing the Holy Spirit or in other early Christian artwork, a succubus or an incubus representing the devil. So it's like they're giving more easily identifiable parallels to like deity and things that people are familiar with. And then the last phase is anthropomorphizing, and that is, quote, anthropomorphizing or personification is an attribution of human form or other characteristics to anything other than a human being. Examples include depicting deities with human form and ascribing human emotions or motives to forces of nature, such as hurricanes or earthquakes. Anthropomorphism has ancient roots as a literary device in storytelling and also in art. Most cultures have traditional fables with anthropomorphized animals, which can stand or talk like humans as characters, end quote. So an example of this would be the myth of Animoi, who is depicted in Greek paintings and sculptures to be the reason that the wind blows. So you'll see him in paintings or in sculptures of him being like up in the clouds, blowing air with his mouth, and that creates the wind. For the most part, religious art started out as aniconic or iconographic, and it only transitioned into anthropomorphic later in art history. And Dickey said, quote, anthropomorphic representation eventually became widespread in religions under the influence of the cultural traditions surrounding them, end quote. We can say like the Greeks, for an example, I mean, it was going on long before the Greeks, but ancient Greeks using myths and storytelling and then transitioning those myths and storytelling into the works of art that they were creating, like sculptures, paintings, tapestries, etc., and making those human personifications into their artwork. That's what made those transitions happen. Okay, so then I also found this website called Gallery Today, And it's a website designed to help artists get their art out to the masses, to museums and galleries, while simultaneously educating people on different aspects of art history. So in a blog post of theirs from March 2017 titled The Importance of Religious Art, it says, quote, Religious paintings idealize, glorify, suggest, and tell the story of a religion. They keep religious traditions alive and make it easier for individuals to visualize a concept or an event that is otherwise difficult to imagine through the use of mere words. They speak to the minds and hearts of different individuals and are useful for convincing unbelievers to adopt a particular religious belief or a religious culture. Like photographs, religious paintings use color and imagery to tell an entire story. Through paintings, a religious event that is described in the history of books is given the same interpretation and meaning today, but with fewer words. The concept of a painting is similar to that of a dreaming, where God uses different symbols to convey a particular message or instruction. Despite various interpretations, the intentions of religious paintings remain the same. 
In other words, religious paintings serve as a means of communication between two or more individuals that several individuals can relate to in a single piece, end quote. So the whole point, like we've just discussed through the last, I don't know, five or 10 minutes, religious artwork started as a way for people to understand the reality of their religious beliefs and their divinity or in the divinity in which they believed. Today, we have religious artwork as like that reminder that here are the things that we believe. We may have like, oh my gosh, if we even talk about like the beliefs that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have, and we go on and on and on for like years and years, but we could instead be like, okay, here's a picture of Jesus carrying a lost sheep on his shoulders. This is to symbolize, you know, how we believe that Christ cares about each one of us individually and will leave the 99 and go after the one who's gone missing and bring them back to the fold. We are that lost sheep. And so like we can convey our beliefs in a more condensed, easily digestible manner with art that we have today. Mm -hmm. We can see how art also helps shape religious belief as time goes on as well right it translates a message that everyone can more easily understand and find themselves in too that's true yeah so now we wanted to go back and discuss some famous pieces from art history for different religions so we didn't want to just focus on christianity because we're christian we're not the only religious group on the planet who has done anything with art There have been many religious groups that came long before Christianity and were doing magnificent things with art and religious art. So we wanted to make sure that we highlighted pieces from everyone. So we are going to start out with Christianity first. There's a couple pieces that we wanted to highlight as being like some of the most famous pieces in religious art history. So one of them is The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. In the Sistine Chapel, it's the guy laying on a cloud and he's pointing his finger and the other godlike man is pointing his finger and they're like touching fingers. Yeah, that's the creation of Adam. Not touching. They're close. They're very close. God is about to give life to Adam and then creation. Yes. Another one is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. I think everybody knows what this painting is. So famous. So famous. And there's a lot of, especially like during that time, I feel like um, was where people were putting a a lot and a lot of meaning into everything they did with art. Um, Like if you, if you take any art history class or humanities or anything, you're going to learn about like the dimensions that, that they were doing, the figure of each single person. And it was deliberately doing certain things. There's certain flowers, there's certain windows in it. Like, I don't know if people do that now, granted, but yeah. Anyways, go on. Um, Another really famous piece is Christ Crucified by Diego Velazquez. It's Christ on a crucifix with like a black background. It's one of the most famous paintings of Jesus Christ in history also. Is it? Yes. I I know the name. I'm looking at it and I can see that I've definitely seen it before. But to me, it's, I guess it doesn't feel as common because like we don't concentrate on the idea or the imagery of Christ on yeah um the cross but if you think about like christ any literally anywhere else anywhere else i guess i think i more easily recognize the art but yeah no that's a very famous and beautiful piece yeah 
And then the last one is a sculpture called the Pieta. It's by Michelangelo. Um, it is hard for me to explain. It is Mary holding her son who is died on the cross. Um, it's meant to be looked at from below, I believe, because if you get super close, you can see the dimensions are kind of off and unrealistic. Um, but yeah, it's basically Christ is laid out, basically dead, kind of almost falling off of her lap. Um, and then it's, it's Mary holding him. It's actually a very beautiful piece. It is. Okay. Yeah. So that's the stuff for Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, then we've got some art from Buddhism that we would like to highlight, such as the Lashan Giant Buddha by Haitan. Um, it is the largest stone Buddha in the world, standing at 71 meters in height, and it was carved out of the side of a mountain um, in Sichuan province. So people travel all over the world. Um, actually, that's in China. Mm -hmm. Is that the one I've been to? I don't know. Have you been to it? <laughs> I have been to a very... Okay, the pictures that are coming up for me are showing a few different options of what it could be. I know I've seen one of those in China. I don't know if it's the same one though. I think that might be the one though that I've seen. Oh, that's cool. Very yeah, nice. It's, it's very big, very impressive. All right, then we've got uh, Sri Lanka. The, I sorry guys, I know we're gonna butcher the names here, but the Galavihara Vihara Temple in Sri Lanka. This has several, a, a couple of carvings that are carved from um, stone of meditating figures, um, Buddha. It is a rock temple of the Buddha situated in the ancient city of Palinarua in North Central Province, Sri Lanka. Fashioned in the 12th century. So there are four rock relief statues of the Buddha, which are incredible. So there's a large seated one, a smaller seated one inside a cavern, a standing figure and a reclining figure. So you have to like see all of them to ex really experience it. Okay, then there is the footprint of the Buddha by Gandhara. It's supposed to be like the first footprint ever of like Buddha himself. Yeah, there is a lot about it at Yale. Um, and I believe that's from around the second century. It's incredible. I just love how and how far you can go back with art and everything. Um, and then this is just one general um, form of art, but it's one of my favorites, actually. Um, mandalas. It's us. I don't feel like I ever say that right. Mandalas? Mandalas. I think it's mandalas. Okay, so that's a geometric configuration of symbols. Like, you probably have an idea in your mind, then you're not super confident about what it is, but I think you're right. Um, it's it's just... It's just like art that like starts in the center and just keeps growing out with um with like more designs. It can like look like stars or flowers, for example. Um, they're very usually colorful and very full. And we've got those from Buddhism. We've got them um, in Mesoamerica, Western. It's a spiritual and ritual symbol in uh, in several Asian cultures overall. Um, but they've been utilized a lot to describe um certain aspects about religion or a certain faith or a spirituality um, that is super cool so now let's go into hinduism 
most of what I found about Hindu art was in relation to sculptures or paintings of deity. So they have Hindu deities represented in like every piece of art that they like will produce. So you'll see Shiva, Rama, Ganesha, Krishna, and Vishnu in like every piece of art or you'll see one of them or like a combination of them in art. Yes. They're like super bright colors usually too. If if they're not like in gold, which is mm-hmm. super cool. Like their temples have like so many characterization, so much characterization to it. That's very fascinating. Also their temples themselves belief. are gorgeous. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's gorgeous. I mean, I'm, I mean, I know like Mormon temples can be pretty, they're white and everything, but there is such vibrance and life to Hindu um temples and places of worship i don't know if they've got other structures that um beyond temples but they're they're stunning and super fascinating there's a bunch of hindu temples in my area in new jersey and they're all beautiful they're all gorgeous i saw some in singapore but i haven't seen any here maybe i'll grant more yeah so aside from paintings and sculptures They also focus a lot of their art on like music and dancing and multiple other art forms. What I found interesting also was through my research, they have a list of 64 traditional arts for Hinduism. That's incredible. Yeah, it's seriously so impressive. And it depends completely on the region that the Mm -hmm. like that you came from which is the most popular art form for like your area. So it completely varies from place to place, but it's all Mm -hmm. incredible. All of it's incredible. And then they also had mandalas were also a very popular form of art for Hinduism as well. Beautiful. Very nice. Okay. Okay. Then we have Judaism, which is a little bit trickier for us to find out more about because for a long time, early Jewish artwork followed the second commandment strictly and avoided representation of deity in artwork. Many of the most famous pieces of Jewish artwork from this time are more in the form of mosaic tiles, specifically flooring and synagogues that depict scenes from their history or frescoes, paintings that become one with the plaster of walls. So overall, there hasn't been too much of it. I do feel like there has definitely been some emergence just because of the commercialism of holidays overall. So more, so even though like Christmas is considered this huge deal, I feel like some people have tried to get like more into like doing more for Judaism. Um, but overall, there really is more of a a restriction um, to artwork from what I've seen. I could be totally wrong. Yeah, there's an article I found that shows like um a mosaic floor i'll share my screen so you can see it yes um, please but it's it's gorgeous yeah this <gasps> whoa let me see if i can zoom in at yeah. sephiroth synagogue this fifth century mosaic is a depiction of the zodiac wheel yeah oh fascinating yeah i feel like they're i feel like they did have a bit of art earlier I mean, back then, they everyone kind of had to be, had to do things visually for their culture, for their forms of worship. We, I just think that the interpretation of them has changed throughout time, and it's harder for us to, but to really understand it or to learn about it um, if you're not in the right place or whatever. I don't know how else to phrase it. 
um, like I know there is definitely um, Jewish art. Mm -hmm. It's just harder for us to know where to look to get it right um, and everything. Yeah. Those mosaic tiles are really yes. unbelievable. Unbelievable. So freaking cool. Okay. Uh, and then we're going to talk about Islam for a little bit. So the two things that I could find specifically about artwork for Islam is um, architecture and calligraphy. So one of the most famous pieces of architecture in literally the world is the Taj Mahal. Hey, it is one of the seven wonders of the world. It is one of the most famous pieces of Islamic art ever. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that. I I know that's because of my super white basic upbringing. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't thought of that <laughs> as a religious location. I just thought of it as a super amazing architectural feat kind of situation. Yep. So it is a religious location. Oh, that's awesome. And then the other thing was calligraphy. So depictions of deity is prohibited in Islam. So their main point of art comes through their calligraphy. So the Quran, which is their main, like, book of scripture their source of truth yes and it is also a main source of inspiration for their art as well so depictions of divine icons again are forbidden in islam however they have developed a script that is unique to their religion and is often incorporated into their art forms like pottery or decorative architecture oh, so yes. if you look at like if you look at mosques you will see this calligraphy all over the place and it will be either built into the stonework or it'll be like painted on the walls or woven into tapestries like this script that they've developed is going to be fully incorporated into every piece of work that goes into that architecture that's awesome i i love their art i love all art i'm not gonna i don't love all art but i love a lot of art um, and the more I learn about like the meaning behind art is like when I like really fall in love with it. So this is good stuff. Um, there are so many more religions and we haven't even talked about the cultural aspects that much. Um, but we do encourage all of you guys to check out more art for yourselves. Um, learn a lot because there is there's so much interesting symbolism and creativity and love that gets put into a lot of the art here. Um, and it's amazing to see how long some of it can endure through the times. Mm -hmm. so yeah, so those are some of the main religions and where some of their art um, concentrations happen to exist. Now we're going to, as usual, um, dive into the LDS aspect of everything. Um, so how did LDS art come about? So I couldn't find specifically when LDS art came about or how it came about. Um, if any historians listen to the podcast and want to correct me, please let me know. But I did find this quote from a 2019 article by Stephen E. Snow of the 70. And he also is a, I can't remember if he was a church historian or if he was a church art historian. One of those two, he used to work for the Church History Museum in Salt Lake as well. So he's like incorporated in there in one way or another. 
Um, but he said, quote, the records in history of the church have been important to the Lord from the beginning. He taught Adam and Eve to keep a book of remembrance, counseled the ancient prophets to keep records, and checked to ensure that the Nephite records were complete. In this dispensation, he taught Joseph Smith and the other early leaders that there shall be a record kept among you, that the records and histories of the church should be kept continually, and that doing so would be for the good of the church and for the rising generation, end quote. So basically what we can infer is that because we're a record-keeping people, we have been collecting artifacts and creating art or records since the beginning of the church. One thing that I found really interesting about LDS art and LDS art history is that because we're such a new church, mm -hmm. we're very young still, yes. that the pieces that we pull are mostly from Christian art history. And then they're added to our catalog of quote unquote church approved pieces. So one example is any painting by Carl Block. So Carl Block is a Danish painter from the 1800s, and he has painted things that are all over our gospel art library. One in particular is the Sermon on a Mount, um, which is pretty much if you look at any gospel doctrine manual, it's going to be in that manual. It's also in, I think it's the cover photo for the third missionary lesson pamphlet the gospel of jesus christ oh. pamphlet <laughs> um it's everywhere yeah, and then another sure. another painting of his is the last supper he did his own version of the last supper in the 1800s and that's all over church materials as well um so really like we just continuously use his work He's not Mormon. He's not connected to the church in any way, shape, or form, um, no. other than his artwork is constantly used in the church. He's of another faith, which I'll touch on a little bit later, but yeah. But his pieces are in temples and chapels, like, everywhere. So it's, yeah, it's just fascinating to me. And then there's another thing that was fascinating to me, too, which is that artwork that ends up being, quote-unquote, church-approved is subject to change over the years. So we discussed this in season one in our Temple 101 episode, how artwork that goes into temples is evaluated by a committee first. So it's by, it's evaluated by the Artwork Evaluation Committee. And then those pieces that pass through this committee and are like approved by them go on to the Temple Facility Site Committee for financial approval. And then once they've been approved for financial approval, they go on to the last committee, the Temple Sites Committee, which is comprised of representatives from the presiding bishopric and the first presidency for that final approval or disapproval. And all of it could be halted because one person doesn't like a color or one little thing about a painting. And then that, that search for artwork that will fit in this chapel or in this temple starts all over again. Or the piece could be tabled by someone smart for a few years until, you know, a presiding official dies or gets reassigned to another thing, another responsibility, and then they bring it back and then it's approved. The piece hasn't changed. It's just been, you know, it's been looked at by different people. So like, it truly depends on the preferences of 
presiding officials views on artwork so like everything is super subjective in the church whether it's approved or not approved super. so yeah well and then it's not just like the artwork that goes into the temple but they've got the same kind of standards maybe not the exact same process but they've got the exact same kind of standards for anything that can go in like church um buildings in general like everything is very closely monitored i know there's been things changing um like, and I know, like, I've actually, like, listened to a few conversations going on because I know, like, there's a lot of work being done on the handbooks. As for art, I know they were recently re-evaluating everything for artwork that could be put in the buildings and everything. So, like, so, and I mean, like, especially, like, there have been concerns um, about lack of diversity within our art, for example. Once you start to notice how pale or white some of our images of Christ are, it's hard not to start noticing the rest of them. Mm -hmm. because they are super white like jesus lived in the middle east he spoke aramaic and his scriptures never note an extreme difference of color of skin he would have had dark skin so he would have been a lot darker than any image that we kind of use for christ within the, our churches and temples because most of the paintings that we use either are from like the 1980s and later mm -hmm. of like what's his face the guy that did the christ in the red robe i can't remember what his name is uh, but honestly damn <laughs> damn i don't know so like his version of christ to now or they're like renaissance-esque paintings Del. Del Parson. Del Parson. Thank you. Boom. Um, or they're like Renaissance-esque paintings where like everyone was white in all of those paintings. Yes. That's it. I mean, that's been an ongoing concern for a time, but I feel like conversations have started to get a little bit louder, especially as rules continue to change. So personally, I am hoping that more diversity will continue to come. I've definitely seen more artwork being created in general, not necessarily within buildings, but individually created by other artists um showcasing christ more um or i or maybe i've just started to actually notice the difference and start looking for it myself but there is a there is a growing discussion here that i think will hopefully be taken notice will be noticed by the church in the coming years yeah in my research i also found one other concern that's also arisen within el like in discussions between elders and higher parts of the our church they were concerned that crisis visualized as too feminine and he needed to be more virile that that was the language that they were using they wanted him to be more manly because priorities the fanny's resting on your face you're so done with this and I, so am i <laughs> i have no words I mean, while it's true that Christ was probably strong, he was a carpenter, um, and that's a lot of manual labor, but, like, that's not a focus that needs to be within church art, um, and, like, I'll hint that, like, I'll dive in a little bit more about this later on next, um, but, like, you know, we've got some super muscly pictures, not of Christ necessarily, but of, like, other church showcasings of, like, art and everything where the men are, like, they were strong. The only one that I want depicted like that is Nephi because he yeah. straight out says I was great and large in stature. Like <laughs> he's the only one allowed to have that look. Everybody else <laughs> is up to your interpretation, mm -hmm. but he's the only one that came out and was basically like, yo, oh, I lived all day. <laughs> I'm in the gym. 365 i am like, strong i am he's the big. only one 
Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, granted, most of the other men in the scriptures and everything, they're like they have like manual labor jobs or um or like were in armies and stuff where they would need to be strong, but it doesn't mean that their muscles would always like, be popping. Like that picture of Abinadi <laughs> in front of King Noah. I'm like, why does this old man need to be ripped? Like, why does he need to be more ripped than like Rocky? Yeah. Why is that necessary? Well, honestly, think about it. Though. The only, that's there's only one person I think that men like that are going to be satisfied mm-hmm. with Christ. If he he could be tall, but if he's not strong enough, if he's not bulging in muscles, they'll discount him. Like we've never talked about his height. What if he's five foot? It's true. What if he's a short king? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <yeah. laughs> uh, but <laughs> I didn't mean to make a joke about that. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, uh, but but yeah, so it's like, I mean, we from most accounts of what's been generally accepted by historians is that Jesus wasn't necessarily a handsome figure. He was rather like plain looking. Historians have never counted him as someone who would have been handsome. Um, so it's just the fact that we try so hard to make him like as manly and handsome and you know, tall, dark, and handsome as possible. Yeah, like that's not necessary. It doesn't do Jesus justice and it doesn't help everyone else down the line either. Because then you're gonna be like, okay, well, as long as someone's physically strong, then that must mean that they're spiritually strong too. And those things things have never literally never been correlated before. Gosh, I'm going to go into some fun little bit of history that I have recently learned about in my research for this. Yes, please. As is clear, no one's going to be totally happy with all the religious art that we've got, especially like, and I'm talking mainly about LDS art um, because we're going to have versions of Jesus that are too white. Then you're going to get people who are complaining that he gets portrayed as too dark at some point or another. You're going to get people complaining that he looks too strong or too weak and so on. Um, I'm not saying any parties are right, but some of them clearly are. Um, but yeah, so I did some fun learning on faithonview.com. And they said that Mormon sculptor Avard Fairbanks argued that it is going to take Mormon artists to give the feeling and proper interpretation to Mormon subjects. So basically saying that it can only be Mormons who are going to understand enough to portray art in the way that Mormons will accept it. And so it reads that the second half of the 20th century saw an explosion of works by Mormon artists. That's when it like really started to dump up. We got a lot more. One of the most influential for LDS conceptions of Christ was Arnold Freiberg. In 1961, the editors of Improvement Era introduced the Gospel in Art series, which provided members the opportunity to obtain frameable reproductions of the work of Freiberg. His name sounds familiar. He's the one who's probably now officially my parents' favorite artist. He's the one who has a picture of George Washington praying next to his horse in the snow. Oh. Yes. Oh, he's the one that did the Jack DeBenedict picture. He did. (laughs) He's also, I think he's Canadian. No, he's an American painter. He's got some art for Mounties. Interesting. Um, He's done the Waters of Mormon art piece. Actually, I always did like that one. Nephi, he's got a lot of um, Native American or indigenous artwork here 
uh, charm to him too. Um, okay, but yeah, you would rec you would definitely recognize his art. And that's when we started getting a lot more LDS-specific art that was now also accessible to everyone within the church. So back to the article, it says that a cycle of paintings on the Book of Mormon, which were published in The Friend, eventually caught the eye of Cecil B. DeMille. And Freiburg was hired to be the chief artist for the film The Ten Commandments. Oh. Hey. After his work in Hollywood was done, he returned to Utah. However, the open tunic of Jesus in Freiburg's The Risen Lord caused a rift with LDS leadership, and he no longer painted images for, of Jesus for the church. How dare Jesus show his Unbelievable. The immodesty. Meanwhile, every oh picture we have of him being crucified has him in basically a loincloth. Basically. Well, then you can look at a ton of other art that we still have for like Nephi and stuff and for others during that time who were what allowed to be more scandalously nude i don't yeah because nephi was large in stature he had to show off his titty (laughs) 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 i don't know (laughs) drama i have no idea oh gosh okay followed in the same thread the church then reached out to harry anderson to take up the mantle of making illustrations for the church from 1971 to 1985 so that's 14 years 41% of images of Christ published in the Ensign were by Harry Anderson. So he, his artwork includes like kind of like blurred parts of it. Like, I don't know how to distinguish it, but he's the one who did the famous blue and white painting of Christ in heaven, um, descending with angels on each side of him. Oh. Yeah. So his vision of Christ as a compassionate ministering servant shaped the modern LDS conception of Christ. So even though we don't always consider ourselves having a lot of artwork, the LDS Church has been very specific in the artwork that they do take on, what they do request to have created or commissioned, that's the word. Um, they're very deliberate on what they want to ensure that it portrays the right way they want certain things and certain people to be portrayed. So it goes on, Anderson, his more emotive style fit more naturally with the LDS concept of consecrated manliness. Then did the harsher classic classicism of Freiburg. In 1971, Ensign also revitalized the gospel and art program, attempting to bring images of Christ into Mormon homes to help inspire and reinforce their piety. Anderson, however, was a devout Seventh-day Adventist. As such, while he was happy to make biblical paintings for the church, he was not willing to make paintings depicting saints from the Book of Mormon. For these images, he then recommended his longtime friend, Tom Lovell. Lavelle. I just saw a picture that Tom Lavelle did. Um, The picture of Moroni sitting beside, it's either Moroni or Mormon, Mm -hmm. in the like blue shirt, sitting on like a cheetah print bedspread thing with the gold plates. Yes. I think that's supposed to be, I want to say that's Mormon. Okay. But yeah, that's one of them. Where you can see, like, the vein going all the way up his arm because he's so jacked. Yeah, so you've got that. It's very interesting to consider how many of these people um, have done art for the LDS Church or has been or whose art has been utilized by the church, whether, you know, freely given, commissioned to be done, or kind of snatched up, co-opted, uh, whatever frame of terminology you would prefer. Um, by these people, mainly men, of course, um, and usually white men, 
Um, oh, okay. So a lot of these men weren't members of the LDS church, but we've taken their artwork in one way or another to use um, because it correlated in the way that church leaders wanted to frame certain people, certain stories, um, and certain situations. I just find it very fascinating because like um, earlier you mentioned Karl Bach. Bach? Bach. Yeah. Bach. He, he was a Lutheran. Um, we've got Anderson, who was a Seventh-day Adventist. We've got people who have like been all over, like in different religions, happily in these different religions. Um, and we're just like, yeah, we like that art too. We're going to, we're going to use it. We're going to take it kind of thing. This is very interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense because, because of how relatively new we are as a religion. And like, if you look at Christian art history, you have it going back for centuries, like you have like the the hits of the Renaissance with like Da Vinci and Michelangelo. Like, how are we gonna how are we gonna top that? We can't top that. Are you kidding? <laughs> true, true. Um, and I do want to follow up on with that. Although I do want to add a quick comment just to round out my first my um what I was starting earlier. Um, so all the information just shared from Faith on Views site actually came from a series on Mormon Christ by Rondell Reynoso. He is a professor, a scholar, and artist. It's a three-part series that is fairly expansive and well-detailed and just describing like the type of artwork, mainly about Christ, that has been done and created um, within or for the Mormon church. You can listen to it or read it. It's very fascinating. Um, but yeah, to back up your comment, yeah, we don't really have a lot of LDS people who have been artists and whose artwork has been done in the right way, quote unquote, um, to be shared within the church and everything. Um, which is then why it gets so interesting when anyone actually is picked up, um, because then like, I feel like we kind of like go crazy for that kind of yeah. stuff. So like, uh, uh, what's, what's that guy's name? Simon something, um, who's done a lot of artwork for Christ about Christ. It's not Simon Cowell, Simon Dewey. It's got that like lively light watercolor. No, no oil. It'd be oils, I oh, think. Oh, this guy. <clears throat> yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He did that famous painting of Christ um, dressed all in white, a lot of white robes um, as he's stepping out of his tomb. Yeah. And then he's got a ton of other Something art. I realized from doing research for this episode is that I do not like the paintings of Jesus Christ that we have for the church. I'm not a fan. Yeah, I've been going through some... They all Girls. look like a generic white dude with a beard, and I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I know. <laughs> not for me. Yeah. yeah, I think I've got two pieces of work, I think, that are basically postcard size of Jesus. One is a blurred watercolor that I bought off a girl from Twitter because her sister was making the art, um, and her sister didn't have a Twitter account. I can't find, I don't know, I couldn't find the name or anything, um, but I love it. It's just... I asked her to use like greens and blues and it does portray Jesus as a man of color. Um, and it's just like a lovely little piece. It's, it's so cute. Um, that, and then I have a, a postcard piece by Kate Lee. Um, her artwork is now in Deseret um, bookstores and everything. And I really like her art just because of its nice simplicity and yeah, but yeah, for for the main stuff that's generally considered acceptable within the church it's it's pretty basic like i don't really feel like they bring a lot of emotion into it 
it's just like, oh, here's like, yeah, obviously here is Jesus. Like it doesn't strike me as with anything. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, but yeah. I have a little mini Christus oh, yeah? sculpture thing. That's it. I don't, I don't do paintings of Jesus around my house. I don't, I'm not that kind of Mormon. That's okay. Well, it's just interesting because when I was like reading on this, like they did start trying to push for people to have more artwork in their homes and everything. So it's like, Mm-hmm. I get it and like I know so many people who absolutely love art um religious art because it's <laughs> especially the Utah art that's going on I'll talk more about this at the end um the look on your face I'll talk I'll explain it in a little bit um but okay but <laughs> overall Elias efforts to grow more art has been like pretty pretty decent at Temple Square they do have that museum like learning area um, where they do have a lot mm-hmm. of art. My grandpa posed for one of the pictures there. Well, what's interesting about that museum too is they have, it's not just like artwork. Like they have a lot of historic pieces in there too. Yes. Like here's a sunstone from the Nauvoo Temple. Cool. And here's like, here's a flask from Heber C. Kimball. Like all of these random things that they're just like, it's art. It's <laughs> it's history. It's art. It's it's a learning opportunity yeah. for taking investigators there and stuff. It kind of is like a hodgepodge amalgamation of everything. It's like this pioneer person may or may not have drank out of this. Put it in the museum. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, so we've got that. We've also got like the center for Latter-day Saint Arts. Um, that's been around for only like four or five years. You can find them Center for Latter-day Saint Arts.org. That's not located in Utah, funny enough. Um, they're in New York. I I almost I meant to go there when I was on my trip in February and I didn't go. Um, they had a Heavenly Mother thing going on and I probably uh, forgot it. Um, but okay, so on their site though, under mission. It says that the Center for Latter-day Saint Arts has a threefold mission to display and perform art by Latter-day Saints in New York City and elsewhere, to publish scholarship and criticism about our art to reach a wider public, and to establish a comprehensive archive of Latter-day Saint Arts, 1830 to the present. It also goes on saying that unlike visitors to the Jewish Museum, the National Museum of the American Indian, Moiso del Barrio, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and other institutions, Latter-day Saints have limited opportunities to expand their identity through our arts. Likewise, others lack the chance to see us through our works. First, we must gather together influences, scholars, artists, and educators to begin a rigorous and inclusive discussion. Next, we must collect information. Who are the artists of the past and present? What are their stories? What are their works? What do they mean? Finally, we must share and educate, including general education regarding why art matters and how it can enrich enrich a life. We seek to be a resource for the church and an asset to the culture. We realize how much more is possible, how much remains undiscovered, undocumented, and unshared. There was a recent art piece, that actually came to Utah. So I saw that one. It had to do with like feminism, Heavenly Mother, and the sacramental cups and flowers. That's all I really remember, but it was very fascinating. So I do want to come back to one point um, that we've talked a little bit about, um, which is a proper or better representation that we could be having and should be having. So I 
will be quoting um, a piece from The Draft, which is a student journal at BYU. From my understanding, I couldn't find when this was written, but it is titled Racial Representation in LDS Art by Rebecca Haymore. And I just want to share the final paragraph or two paragraphs um, from her piece where she discusses how she never felt properly represented in artwork of like with Christ and his followers and so on. She wrote, artists and Latter-day Saint distributors have an important direct role to play in diversifying church art as they create, promote, and sell new paintings that shape the religious art market. However, members must use buying power and word of mouth to show retailers that there is a demand for racially representative artwork. The next time you want to add a piece of church-themed art to your home or display art in your lesson, try looking through the collections of lesser known artists such as Young Sun Kim, George Coco Stangelo, Brian Kirchesnick, Kathleen Peterson, Elspeth Young, and other creatives featured in the church's international art competitions, which happens on a regular basis, so everyone should you know, be checking those out. Um, as members promote the popularity and profitability of racially diverse artwork, the amount of representative art in the mainstream Latter-day Saint market will increase. I hope that diverse artwork inundates Latter-day Saint culture until children of color can easily find paintings of people who look like them. I imagine that instead of my saying to myself, those girls next to Jesus have brown hair like me, the next generation of children of color will say to themselves, that person looks just like me and realize and remember that they belong in Jesus' arms too. So I just really like that. And I've definitely become more aware over the last couple of years of, of that need. Um, and granted, like since I got red hair and that's like little rarely represented, I've always like looked for like little pieces of like religious artwork like with people with red hair. It's just natural. You want people who look like you and everyone deserves to have that. Um, even if the majority of people in the, in this religion are white, that doesn't matter. You need to have that inclusivity. Yes. I like that. So now we're going to transition over to talking about some of our favorite pieces of religious art, both LDS and non LDS. So I'm going to start with LDS artwork specifically. Um, so this is what what I'm calling LDS artwork is loosely used because it's <laughs> it could be LDS artists or it could be artwork that we see frequently in like temples, chapels, etc. So one of my favorite artists is Minerva Tykert. I don't know if she is LDS or not, but like a lot of her artwork is in temples. My two favorite paintings by her are Christ in a Red Robe, and then the other one is The Rescue of the Lost Lamb. So Christ in a Red Robe, it's literally like the whole painting is kind of red, like the whole thing. And it's him standing and looking down and extending his arms, and he's in a red robe, obviously, hence the name. Um, but I love it. It's beautiful. And then the other one is The Rescue of the Lost Lamb. It reminds me of a combination of like, starry night by van gogh and something by monet like anything by oh, monet and it's yeah. like you blend mm -hmm. those two art styles together and it's christ carrying a lamb over his shoulders and there's like little sheep around him it's also a beautiful painting i love that and then specifically lds artists 
One is Christ in Tulips by The Color Amber. Um, the Color Amber we actually found on Instagram. Love her. Definitely look her up. Her work is great. Yeah. And Christ in Tulips mm-hmm. is beautiful. Um, another one is called In Their Image by Caitlin Connolly. This is the huge 12-foot painting that she did in, yes. I want to say, 2018. I'm probably wrong. You can correct me. 2016, I think. But it goes back that far, at least. But it's of both heavenly parents. And then coming out of them is all of their lineage. And you can see, like, different different races. Like, everything mm-hmm. represented in this painting. It's so, so it's, beautiful. I, I love her artwork, especially, like, her Instagram uh, file right now or profile sorry um because she'll melt her artwork with her children's and it is the cutest thing and it just feels more humanly connected and like portraying like motherhood and the messiness and beauty of it um I don't I I just really started to love her artwork more and more um and then followed by Melissa Tishikamba Tishikamba I hope I'm saying that closely to correct. Um, she, okay, so I met her at Penner's conference and I'd already been following her for some while. Um, I'm not entirely sure if she is um, or still is LDS, but I absolutely love everything that she does. Um, she works with gold leaf, um, high, high focus on that with inclusivity and flowers and bees and honey. Like I got, uh, I got one of her paintings that I bought there. It's just absolutely beautiful. She's got some pieces of, um, of Joseph and Mary and Jesus, and I absolutely adore them. Yeah, and then just uh, another one to reference. Um, you put down Christ healing the sick at Bethesda by Carl Block, and that one's a really good one. I like. I don't know what medium it was, maybe oils, but it's the lighting is just very. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because the it's one of my favorite paintings and it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible too. The person that you think Christ is healing is not the person that is actually being healed in the photo. So like when you look at the photo first, you see this man kind of like sitting scrunched up in a ball next to the pool and you think, oh, that's the one that's being healed. But no, it's actually the person that's under the tent flap that Christ has raised. And he's like completely in shadow. You really have to look closely to be able to see him, but that's the person that Christ is actually healing at the sick, at the pool of Bethesda. So you can like almost miss him because he is completely wrapped up in shadow. Yeah. But I love it. It's my favorite painting. That's a very good one. Yeah. Okay. Then I, I added a list of several more artists. Good, do it, share them. Because I love them all. I there, there really is so much amazing religious art, you guys, within just the LDS church or um, related to them. Um, I have found them either through Instagram or by attending local um, co-ops or related showings of things. <clears throat> so firstly, I did mention Kate Lee. So that's two names, Kate Lee. Um, like I said, her stuff is in Deseret bookstores. Um, she's her style is like a watercolor with like that's reminiscent of like the willow tree, um, little wooden artwork. So it's simple, but it's lovely. 
Then we've also got Jay Kirk Richards, and he uses that kind of like blurred chalk um, medium to his work. He actually has a beautiful piece um, of Nike, the statue, like in rainbow that I really want for a tattoo someday. It's stunning. I think about this on a regular basis. Um, he also has a studio in Utah and does exhibits there um, and like programs and stuff with local artists in Utah. Some of it's religious, some of it's not, but it's all beautiful. Um, another piece of artwork that I just want in general is from M. Alice or Mary Alice Abrams. Um, she does little Christ-related art with rainbows. It's very simplistic, but it is so pretty. It's it's just it's just it's just so lovely. Then there is also Haley Labram Morrison. Um, I've talked, she she did a showing in Utah. I wasn't there. I did see some of her artwork. Um, I've talked about this with other friends um, that we've had on our podcast. Um, she's a contemporary painter um, of the woman's experience, mainly as an LDS member. Um, so her artwork is compelling. It's the kind of artwork that gets emotions out of me, but I don't like them. <laughs> like I get it and I love it. And I, I think that's kind of like what some of the reaction that she's looking for um, because it, it's just so fascinating, but it, it's very compelling. I'm just going to say that you guys do need to check her out. Um, you also need to check out, um, I, I, they don't have a lot of artwork out, but Ash Rowan's um, founder of GEM, the Gender Expansive Mormons. They're a group that shares um, stories from Latter-day Saints and Mormons all along the spectrums of trans and expansive gender and belief. They're an artist poet. Um, I actually got an, an online argument with someone who was saying that Christ is not inclusive and I blocked that person and I've never done that before, but it really is one of my most favorite pieces of artwork. It's of Christ um, wearing I don't want to say it's a hood. That's not what they call them. Um, but he's wearing cloth over his head. And then there is a rainbow that is reflected within there. And it is just, it's just beautiful. And it evokes warmth and comfort for me. Um, so yeah, so a few more places where you can check out more religious type of LDS art is and checking out Exponent 2. Um, it's a liberal LDS magazine. They've got an Instagram. They've got a magazine. Um, that is often covered in art. They have we have the Art Hive. They're an art collective that creates, shares, and teaches about quirky and modern LDS art. Like they've done some like sci-fi like framework of it. It's super fascinating, super fun. Um, and then in general, you can also check out Ritz and Vision. It is a small bookshop in Provo. You can also explore them online. Um, that's where I've been to a few of my art shows before. Um, where you can learn more about LDS-centric artists and everything. But yeah, so those are just a few of the places or people that you can and should check out. Um, I will try to include as many of those accounts as I can um, for our Instagram posts on this. Um, but I just want to reassure you guys that even though the church doesn't approve very much, and I don't think that they approve all the art that they should be approving, there are still quite a few artists out there who are doing really compelling work that mm -hmm. more people need to look at their stuff. I'm so yeah, I yeah. agree. And it's funny that you I'm really glad that you mentioned that because mm -hmm. like I had mentioned earlier, I don't like paintings of Jesus Christ that we have currently, like with the exception of the two by Minerva Tykert that I mentioned 
earlier and Carl Block, that one of him Christ by the pool of Bethesda. Besides those, I really don't like paintings of Jesus in the church. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And then that brings up because I did want to uh, ask you this earlier. Like we know we've just discussed how several other religions and faiths don't really try to portray and they don't want to portray their deities because to them, that's like science of disrespect. Like you can't quantify <clears throat> something so holy within even beautiful artwork. Like Except that we love to do that. Like, yeah, we try to do that, which is very interesting that we are very centered on that because yeah, we do try, like, we don't want idols or anything. We're not going to worship sculptures and paintings and everything. At least we shouldn't be doing that. But does that mean it's okay to create artwork? Because as we've discussed, we don't like a lot of the artwork. We don't think it does Christ justice in some areas or they're trying to do too much in the wrong way. So it's like, should I, I just feel like there is a lot that could be discussed and whether or not we should have artwork of Jesus Christ within the church. Yeah. There's this, there's like a whole Reddit thread of like realistic recreations or depictions of Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. And there's one that I found that I like that I feel like would probably be close for, at least in my opinion, I feel like this is close. Um, All right. I can show it to you. Yes, please. But anytime I see it, I'm always like, yeah, that's that seems close. Yes, that is the one. Yes. Um, that is the one I always think of. Yeah. Yeah. Like when people try to like do Christ justice, yeah, he's got that long nose. He's got the darker skin, the dark hair. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've like also like given him like I think they look like super kind eyes. Yeah. Um, he's not He's not classically handsome and what one would expect in LDS culture because it is very white. I will say that. But yeah, to me that, oh, that's AI. Mm -hmm. What? Interesting. Okay. I need to read up more on this, but I I really do like this one. Yeah. I like that one. The only thing that I would change was I would make him have longer hair because I don't feel like anyone Mm -hmm. had short hair back then, but that's just my, you know, Mm -hmm. uncultured opinion um but i i find myself leaning more towards pictures like that of christ than Mm -hmm. anything that we have currently and so anytime i see someone on instagram or anywhere on the internet that has painted or created something with jesus not looking freaking european um that's what I tend to gravitate towards. And so I am so glad that you brought up like that the church has, there's a lot of artwork out there that the church hasn't approved. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that the artwork that moves us the most and like helps us feel closer to Christ or closer to our heavenly parents doesn't have to come from church approved locations. It can come from anywhere. If you find yourself gravitating towards a certain piece of art, then go for it. Like, get it. If that's what makes you feel the spirit, then get it. Put it in your home. Who cares what the first presidency says? Right, exactly. Like, they're trying to do a generalized version that I feel is definitely on that more European scale, um, which is, I I think, in their mentality, it has, like, the idea of, like, cleanliness or something, and it's, like, above reproach. I feel like that's their mentality here, which is not what they should be going for. They need to be doing something that, like, 
looking for art that like really speaks to people because we come from all different cultures and histories and places and everything. Like I saw this whole Twitter thread about artwork about a a picture of a Tongan Jesus Christ. I could not find the picture Ooh. of it. And I was like, no, I, I want I want to be able to see that. I want to see the way that other cultures and other nations are representing Jesus Christ. Because I don't like, I mean, yeah, I, I do want to find someone who um I do like the artwork of someone that is realistic and what we were just looking at um of what Christ would most likely look like. But it's also important to notate, like, yeah, other people are going to think of him looking like someone else, like from their culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I do find that appropriate. I, even though like we talked about how we don't want to see a white version of Jesus Christ, <laughs> we don't need that. Um, but, it's because we know he's not I know. white. <laughs> I know. But like, I, I love the idea that other cultures can do that for themselves because they, they want to be able to see that kind of like representation for themselves. And I just really like that. And I think we need more of it. Um, so yeah, we should be looking for the art that, that really speaks to us. So yeah, so to conclude, where will our LDS art go from here on out? We don't know. Our hopes are clearly that it will continue to evolve, that better representation will come to pass, and that we can actually learn from the artwork, that we can learn to enjoy it um, and feel spirit, something spiritual from it. Religious art from the past was made to remind us of doctrine and to bring us in general closer to holiness. Um, today, contemporary art is generally considered a medium that is meant to make us think and to feel. We should be able to continue doing that with the artwork that we see, um, with the artwork that we include in our lives and our homes. So this was a lot of fun, I thought. Um, and we hope that you guys enjoyed taking a bit of a closer, a bit taking a bit of a look at um, the artwork that the church has, um, looking into other current artists of what they're doing, and we invite you to take a closer look at all the religious art that you come in contact with, whether it is LDS art or not, because you can clearly find holiness or spirituality or joy in artwork that isn't created by LDS artists or LDS-centric. You can find all types of beautiful art out in the world. So we invite you to look more into that, to check out some of the artists that we mentioned. Um, Like I said, we'll tag as many as we can in our Instagram. And we hope you guys learned something today. Yeah. I have nothing else to add. So I'm just going to wrap it up and say thanks for joining us this week. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. We are thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can support our podcast and others in the network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. You can learn more at dialoguejournal.com. So check it out.